turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to do things maybe hopefully a little differently this morning. Mark chapter 6, you will need your Bible this morning to read along with us. I was hoping to be able to project it up on the screen so that we could all look at the same text together, but that is unfortunately not going to, not in the cards this morning. So um, we'll do it a different way. But I want, uh, I want to show us, and I want, I'm hoping that God will reveal things in this scripture together with me kind of acting as our tour guide, but I'm hoping that you can see um, uh, how God reveals himself through the, through the Bible through you and through your, your own observations. Never done anything quite like this before, but I felt that this is what God wanted to do in this particular passage. First, let's read it. We're going to read Mark chapter 6, 14 through 44. A good swath, and I'll show you why, why we're going to tackle this much, because, well, it's Mark's fault. I'll, show, I'll tell you why in a, in a, in a little bit. Um, this is Mark chapter 6, verse 14 through 44. I'll, I'll start it out. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said that he's John the Baptist, that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he married her. That is, Herod Antipas married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Hashtag dysfunction. Uh, Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept himself safe when he heard him. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I'm now in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of, of, of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the, said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will, give you, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. In my mind, I always hear this, the head of John the Baptist, you know, because she's in my mind, an an ugly, nasty, evil woman. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, and he immediately sent, uh, and immediately the king sent an executioner with, uh, with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And, with, and when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, deep, deep breath. Okay, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a little bit. And many were coming and going, and they had no leisure time, not even to eat. And, then, and they went away in the, in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot in all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw this great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they, they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And he began to teach them many things. And when, he, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. By the way, in the, in the Greek language, the you there is the emphasis. So it's Jesus's, this is the tone. You give them something to eat. It's kind of a little bit like, boom, back on you, okay? That's, that's really there in the Greek language. And they said to him, shall, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, excuse me, and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, we did it. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would bless our time here this morning. Lord, that you would lead us through and guide us through. Lord, as we do this together, I really felt that this is the way you wanted us to do it. I had that pictured in my heart and mind this morning, so I'm trusting you with this new format. I pray that you would enlighten all of our eyes to see, all of our minds to discern what your, your Bible is telling us. Um, we love you, Lord. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've been going through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, as you know, in order to observe the person of Jesus for who he is. Um, and let it challenge us to maybe put aside who we thought Jesus was, or maybe certain, maybe not a complete putting aside, but certain emphasis. Maybe you've emphasized a certain part of Jesus that needs to be maybe recalibrated and brought into balance with other emphasis that we're finding in the book of Mark. That's the idea. And today, Mark is going to tell us something about Jesus by using a device. Um, there's a literary device that Mark uses here called an intercalation. Okay, this is a, an intercalation. It's a, it's a literary device that Mark uses. Okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you the layman's term that scholars have now come to use. They call it a Markin sandwich. In fact, that's gonna be the title of my sermon today. I'll have a Markin sandwich, please. Mark, uh, Mark does this about six times. It's unique to Mark. He loves doing this. He loves this trick. And basically, an intercalation or a Markin sandwich is when an author or a storyteller um, inserts another story right into the middle of an of, of a existing story before he comes back and concludes his story. Okay? He, he kind of, he puts a, it's a Markin sandwich. He starts one story and it almost seems like a weird interruption. He just starts talking, like in, our, in this case, he starts talking about Herod in the middle of the story, and then he'll come back to it. Um, and Mark is so famous for this, like I said, people have now come to call this six, debatably seven or so, Mark and sandwiches. Um, and let me give you an example of the first one. It's very clear. Look at, look at and I was, gonna, I was gonna show this to you on the screen. It was gonna be so cool, but it's fine. Um, look at Mark chapter one. You can see it right there. In the very beginning, Mark says this. He says, the beginning of the gospel account about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right, listen, he says this. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you, a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the path for him. That's a Mark and sandwich, let me show you. He says, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes 
Malachi, not Isaiah. Let me tell you what, he says, let me tell you what Isaiah said. And then he quotes Malachi. He inserts a verse from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And then he goes to Isaiah right after that. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. It's a Mark and sandwich. It's Mark's way of saying these things need to be read together in order for you to understand. This is what he's saying. I'm going to show you Isaiah, but you're not going to get the point of it unless you first read Malachi. Mark does this all the time. Okay, and the, the, the place that we're in today is one of his, one of his more famous places, Mark chapter six. Um, our passage, well, let me point it out to you. Look back, look back, you're gonna, again, you're gonna use your Bibles today. Look back with me, back to, go back to chapter six and start in verse seven with me. Here's the story, it says, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Verse 10. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So then... um, So they went out and proclaimed that that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were were sick and healed them. Now that's not the end of that story, okay? That storyline is picked up again. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure to even eat. And they went, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. You see what's happening here. Then Mark takes us into the feeding of the multitude. Okay, the, the famous story of the feeding of the multitude is actually the conclusion of the apostles' story being sent out with authority two by two into the villages. That's all one story. So right in the middle of this story about the apostles going out two by two with authority and all of these things in the name of Jesus to preach repentance, right in the middle of that, in verses 14 through 29, Mark inserts the story about Herod and John the Baptist and Herodias. What's Mark saying? He's saying, in order for you to get this, you've got to read these together. It's Mark's fault that we're going through verse 14 through 44 this morning. They were meant to be read together. What is he trying to say? Again, he's doing this to say, you gotta get this. What's he trying to tell us? Well, this morning, this is where I wanted to do things a little differently, and I'm hoping that you will participate with me. I wanna act as kind of our guide, our tour guide, as we try to figure this out together. So here's the format that I'd like to do. We're gonna look at the first, um, well, we're gonna look at the middle part of Herod, okay? And I'm gonna build it out for us a little bit so that I can train you on what specifically to look for. I want to help you know what exactly that we're looking for, and then I'm going to open the floor, and I want to, we'll we'll talk about what we see, what we observe in the text. I want you just to tell me what you see there, okay? And then we'll follow the same format for the next section with the apostles and the the feeding of the multitude, and then finally, we'll prayerfully put our heads together and see what the Spirit is telling us about this Mark and Sandwich. We'll discuss it together, okay? You guys game? You up for it? Let's pray one more time. Lord, reveal to all of us, open all of our eyes to see, and make me a good tour guide. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's do it. We're going we're gonna to tackle first, verse 14 through 29. I'm going to tell you some things first so you can know what the boundaries are and you can know what you're looking for, and then I'm going to set you loose, all right? And I, did, I was going to type notes as we were all saying it, but you can't see anymore, so it's all good. Okay, I'm going to read it again. Verse 14 through 29. Um, listen carefully. See what, you, see what you just, you're a wallflower. See what you see. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you that you have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard of, when he heard of him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But... An, opportun- an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of, of Galilee. For, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And, she, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, I want the head of, I want the head of John the Baptist. <laughs> That's like a laugh and a smoker's cough. I, I'm picturing, um, you know, the, the underwater sea witch in Little Mermaid. Just, if you want to know, if you want to know what's happening in my mind, that's, that's what's happening. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. And immediately the king sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. Okay, to get us started, number one, we need to pay attention to the word king in verse 14. King Herod. First word in the verse, King Herod. Herod, here's what I need you to know. Herod was not a king. He was not. He was what's called a tetrarch. Have you guys heard of that? Which is basically a vassal king. It was someone that Rome would divide up... um, four parts of a given territory and give them over to four kings to rule as they wanted to. So Herod did have a lot of authority. He did have a lot of power, but it was only power that had been given to him, okay? Um, That's the first thing we need to know. He ruled for, in fact, later, Rome is gonna kick him out because he's gonna forget his place. And later in history, they're gonna say, get out of here. You don't know what you're doing. Now, before before I open the floor, I want to invite you to pay attention um, to deja vu moments all throughout this. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. There are, if you know your Bible well, or to the degree that you know your Bible, there are things sprinkled throughout this section that should make you think of other things that you've heard about in the Bible before. In fact, Mark is counting on it that you're gonna understand some things, okay? So feel, uh, so in other words, pay attention to that. If you're reading through, we'll take some moments, take a look at it. As you're reading through, pay attention to, to what your mind says. Oh, that reminds me of this. Oh, that reminds me of that. Okay? And from there, floor is open. Tell me what you see. What, what can we learn from Herod Antipas from this story? 
What's Mark trying to tell us? Yeah, Herod's an insecure guy. I think we could put it that way. Yep. He's a people pleaser. Yep. He's a pedophile. True. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I think I call that I call it irrational thinking like that. Maybe you'd agree. Paranoia. Maybe he's, very, he's feeling very guilty over what he's done and now it's haunting him. He's tormented by what he did. So he's a torment. So he's not, he's not a guy that's at peace. If, I, if this, I'd be typing all this out for us to see. It was gonna be so cool in my mind. I was like, I know, I need to let it go. It's true. That's not true. But thank you for saying that. But it, no, this is a different Herod. That was, that was Herod the Great when Jesus was two years old to put a decree out. Yep. This is Herod Antipas, his now son. Yep. Thank you for clarifying that. Yep. What, can, what else can we learn from the test? So we've we got a super insecure guy. We've got a paranoid guy. Um, let me, who's the, who do you see there? Um, let me point this out to you. King Herod. Um, heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well-known. He's super insecure. And people were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Um, others were saying in verse 15 that this is Elijah. That should jump out at you. What does Elijah remind you of in, when it comes to this story? Any things come to your guys' mind? To who? And Ahab and who else? Who is his wife? Does Ahab and Jezebel remind you a lot of, of, King, of Herod and, his, and Herodias? Ahab was a super weak person. Vassaled back and forth. Jezebel was the one that was really in charge. In fact, I was gonna, uh, well, I'll, I'll let it go, Paul, for the love. Um, 1 Kings chapter 19. Let me read you this. 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab and Jezebel, uh, or now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make you like one of them. It was Jezebel that had a grudge against Elijah. against Elijah. And now look here in our, in our passage. So Herodias, verse 19 of Mark chapter 6, it was Herodias that nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. You remember what Jesus said about John in, in Matthew, um, uh, Matthew, I think it's chapter 11? What did Jesus say about John? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said that John is a type of Elijah of the prophet Elijah. Jesus said that. He said, if you, he said, if you can hear it, this is Elijah who's come to make my way straight. Mark's doing this on purpose, you guys. 
He's saying this is, he's speaking, he's, he's counting that Jewish people who know their scriptures and who know the history will be able to go, gosh, that reminds me of another prophet, Elijah, who stood up against, who's stood up against a corrupt kingdom. Okay, so we've got a guy that's a lot like that. Um, okay, what else? What else can we see here? Oh, yeah, you don't have to read. <laughs> yeah, that's so <laughs> We've got a lifelong academic here. You've been raising your hand for a long time. You can just spur it out. Different crowd. Go ahead. Yes. And John the Baptist. Yeah, you, there's kind of a conflict within Herod's own soul, isn't there? There's, there's like, man, I, I like John and I like hearing him, but he's really convicting me and he's holding, you know, he's saying this is wrong. So he's got kind of, I, I've got my desires and I've got this guy that, I, this conviction that I kind of like. So yeah, there's a, there's a divide going on. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, can I, I mean, Herod throws himself a birthday party. I mean, isn't that what this, this, this is about? He throws himself a birthday. Who, who's invited to the birthday party? What kind of people? What's that? People of rank. I mean, what's that? Schmoozers. That's right. Look at, well, and look, he's got all the important people there. Let's get specific here. High officials, that's political people military commanders, so he's got politics, he's got military going on there, and then leading men, or some of your translations might say the nobles of Galilee, that's, that's cultural leaders, cultural trendsetters, those types of people. He's got all, he invites all the important people. This is a schmoozing event, absolutely. This is, a, this is all about his power, okay, and consolidating his power. So we've got this really insecure guy that's not a king but wants to be a king, really wants to be a king, who throws himself a birthday party. Um, someone, an Elijah-type figure, is challenging him the same way that Elijah and kings challenged Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel is, um, just the way Jezebel was going after Elijah, this Herodias is going after John the Baptist. These are not coincidences. This is very intentional. What else? There's something else. Hone in on the phrase, up to half my kingdom. Here's this girl so Herodias sends her own, well, prostitutes her own daughter out before Herod and these men to, to dance this erotic dance before them. And it pleased him so much that, look, he's, he's willing, look what he's willing to do. He says, I'm willing to give up up to half my kingdom. Does that remind you of anything? Okay, uh, what about in the Old Testament? Let me read it to you here. This is, um, <clears throat> this is Genesis chapter 25. The boys grew up, you ready? And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying more to the... Uh, he was a homebody, staying more amongst his tents. Isaac, who had, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Um, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came 
in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm so hungry. And that's why, they call him, that, that's why he's called Edom. And Jacob replied, well, first sell me your birthright. What's a birthright, folks? What's it represent? What does the birthright get? Something awfully close to a kingdom. Something very close to a kingdom. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. As he's holding the stew, swear to me first. So he swore to an oath, selling him his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and drank. So, so it says, it concludes, so Esau despised his birthright. Well, you say, but Mike, um, you know, that's a bowl of stew. This is a, this is a, a sexual thing with, with, uh, with Herod. But look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look what it says. The writer of the Hebrews inserts this. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like who? Esau. Genesis doesn't say that. But the writer of the Hebrews inserts something sexual. Sexual like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no charge of mine that he couldn't repent, though he sought the blessing with tears. In other words, it was irreversible. He couldn't get the birthright back. So he sat. So Esau and Herod, impetuous people, why do, I, why do I link it with Esau rather than, say, Jesus? Well, another reason um, is because it's really compelling that Herod, Herod was a genetic descendant of Esau. Yep, yep. Herod the Great was an Idomean, and Idomeans were descendants of Edom, which were descendants of Esau. This, you could say the apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree. This is very much intentional on Mark's part. He's saying he is, here's an impetuous man who is willing to give up what he seeks so badly, what he wants so bad, power, kingdom, and yet when his mood, when a hunger takes him, same way, whether it's a sexual hunger or basically any kind of uh, bodily need that says, I need this now, he's so impetuous, he's willing to give that up and trade right there on the spot. And here, just the way it gets Esau into trouble, it gets Herod into trouble, up to half my kingdom. And she says, well, give me the head of John the Baptist. And he goes, oh, and he wished he wouldn't. Now it's torturing him. The same way Esau was tortured from this, his mistake. He sought for repentance, in other words, to reverse it, but couldn't reverse it. Here Herod does something to show, to flex his power that he can't reverse that's now tormenting him. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. This is all very much important. Okay, so now, uh, let's move on. One last thing that's very important. How does Herod show the power of his kingdom? How does he flex? What's he do here? Just look at the text. It's not, no trick questions. What's the text saying? How does he show his strength? With what? He kills, right? Okay, so Herod shows his strength. Notice, he imprisons someone, and no one's there. There's no fair trial. 
He's got that much authority. He can just imprison who he wants. And to show his power, he can kill whoever he wants. Look at the word immediately. He gave the word, and he's in front of all these important, powerful people. And to show the power of his kingdom, to flex, he says, now. And immediately an executioner goes out, cuts off the head of John the Baptist, brings it in. Look how powerful I am. Just like that. Okay? Those are some of the main points of the text that Mark's showing us. Uh, Most scholars call this this Mark and Sandwich, the clash of the kingdoms. Because let's, so here we go, conclusion. Herod's kingdom is an insecure one, uh, likened a lot to the insecurity we found in in his ancestors Esau, that shows power by killing its enemies. Anyone stands in my way? That's how he shows power. Herod, like Esau, despises the kingdom he so desperately wants. And it comes back to torment him. So, look now um, as the original story resumes. Now we're into the bread, I guess. That was the meat. Here's how the story resumes. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So now we're picking back up the story again. Remember, that's the context. The disciples going out two by two. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boats to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to, came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, well, we have five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds, by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples who gave them to the people. And he divided the two fish among them, among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, here's some guidance before I'm gonna set you free here. Before you start going for it, please do not, okay, historically, let me build this out. Historically, we know that when Jesus left the villages and the towns of Galilee to go across the lake in order to find peace and quiet, he was going to a very remote part of the region. And this part of the region historically was the hotbed of revolutionary resistance to the Roman Empire and to people like Herod, okay? The people out in this desolate place in the hill country, this kind of demographic were the people most sympathetic to people who wanted to overthrow Rome through violence, okay? This place was rural. It was, it was not in the city. It was in the sticks. And notice, out in the middle, this enormous crowd comes to Jesus. Huge crowd. I mean, this is a patriarchal society. 5,000 means the heads of families. We're talking probably somewhere between 15 to 20,000 people go out to this remote place. 
What do they come for? Here's why I'm building this out. I do not want you to think of a church picnic, you know, with checkered blankets and we're all going to have a nice meal. That's not what was happening. They were coming out to find a leader for their revolution. And we know this outright because John, in John's account, he tells us this in John chapter 6, 15, that they were going to make him king by force. That's what they were doing. Um, they were looking for a revolutionary leader and they were ready to march on Jerusalem and get it done. That's this crowd. Now, remember what we just saw in Herod. A description, Mark puts in the middle of the story a description of the most oppressive, exploitive kind of imperial rule that you can imagine. No wonder these people wanted to revolt. So he's saying, here's how, what Herod was like, and here were these people that hated him. And Jesus had this instant army in front of him. 15, 20,000 people that he could that he could weaponize, that he could train, you know, like what they do today. Some, you know, out in the Middle East today, if a follower finds himself with a couple hundred or a thousand people, he starts handing out weapons and training them, right? That's kind of what's going on here. So, um, what are they looking for in Jesus? Let me just bring it down for you. This is what you need to know before you start looking. They're looking for a new Davidic king, that's the Messiah, who will liberate them from bondage and tyranny. That's what they want. A new Davidic king that they've been waiting for and that the prophets have been telling them about, Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the rest, Ezekiel, um, who will set them free, liberate them from bondage and tyranny, from political economic slavery. That's what they're looking for. That's what this crowd wants. So with that in mind, what do you notice? What's Mark telling us about Jesus? Take your time. He's contrasting two gatherings of two leaders. Yep. Yeah. He's contrasting two gatherings of two leaders. That's exactly right. Herod throws a birthday party for himself in a palace with a bunch of important people. Jesus throws a banquet for nobodies, zealots, revolutionaries out in the middle of nowhere. Right? Is that right? Great observation. Anyone else? Well, those, all those people that came out there were hungry. And all Herod's people were not hungry. They didn't need anything. Sure. Yep, absolutely. Jesus goes to them. Herod brings people to himself. Okay. Okay. Yep. I like where you're I love it. I like where you're going with this. Christine, yeah. Yes. Yep. 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 Yes. Yep. Yep. He's going to serve. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yep. I love it. <laughs> the insecurity of Herod, then we can say that if the reverse is true, that Jesus is quite secure in, and, and desires his, his kingdom. He's not there to. Herod's got something to prove, right? Jesus doesn't have to prove a thing, does he? Jesus is so secure, he can forget about himself and he can, he can help other people. 
Herod is so insecure. Go, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the same. He wasn't trying to flex his muscles like Herod was. Yes. Yes. Yes, right. And, well, and there was the power displayed there, right? Jesus did a miracle. So, but, so there's displays of power. How does John display his power? Or, excuse me, Herod, by killing, right? Jesus displays his power by serving. So a lot of people, when we think about the miracles of Jesus, um, and those of you that have those kinds of gifts, I know there's some of you here that, um, God has used to heal people. You'll notice this trend that Jesus doesn't do a miracle or the, the, a miraculous theology of Jesus is not to show off his power. Otherwise, this, this kind of miracle would not be, right? This is not a very impressive miracle to show power. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we can think of a whole a ton of other things. You know, he could be like a fireball, watch a mountain explode or you know he could do so many things if, if the point of the miracle was to show himself off he could have done so many other things but he, his miracles are to serve they're to meet needs they're to give they're selfless yeah absolutely teaches us about the miracles of Jesus or when someone comes to you and says if God is so powerful how come he doesn't just show up by doing this that or the other thing well because he doesn't need to prove himself to anybody Great, you guys are doing good. This is like uh, Bible students or something. Anything else? Uh, let me point something out, out to you. It says that phrase, um, Jesus has compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. What is that all about? That sounds so cute and cuddly, doesn't it? It's actually a quote from Moses. Um, it's a, it, Mark is inserting numbers. Let me look it up for you. Numbers chapter 27. It's a direct quote from Moses. 27, I think it's, um, let's see, 15. Look at this. Moses said, this is right before Moses is going to die. This is Moses' prayer for Israel. Listen, he says, Moses said to, to the Lord, may the Lord, the God, of, uh, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community. Listen to this to go out and come in before them who will lead them out and bring them in. What language is that? What kind of language is that? Anybody know Old Testament? No? No? It's a mili- yes, it's military language. In fact, almost every time this phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's talking about a military leader. So Jesus is accepting the invitation. He's saying, yes, I'm going to lead you but just not in the way you think. I have compassion on you. Here's all these people ready to rock who need, they need liberation. I'm just not gonna liberate you with a program of revolution you know, in, in the way that you're thinking or a violent revolution. It is very revolutionary, as we'll see, but not in a violent kind of a way. That's really important. Um, what does Jesus do? when he sees this army of 15, 20,000 people ready for war? What does he do? Sam. Well, first he's, he, well, I mean, look at the text. He says, it says he, he preaches the gospel to them. So instead of hand out weapons and weaponize them and train them for war, he preaches the gospel to them. And then he likens the gospel to what? He has a visual. He likens the gospel, his words, to bread. 
Uh, bread, gosh, it's so, unf- I mean, it's, it's great that we're so affluent and that we have so many blessings here in this country, but it's horrible when it comes to the Bible because we don't get things, because uh, we have so many food options. You know what I'm saying? When we think of bread, what do we think of? We think of it as pure carb, right? We think we, I should probably maybe stay away from that a little bit. But back for these guys in the first century, they didn't, I mean, these are people that didn't know where the next meal was coming from or if it was coming at all. So bread to them was a symbol of life. It was a symbol of survival. It was a symbol of, of being able to live another day. That's what, that's what bread was all about. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's pairing his words that he's giving them with the bread that he's feeding them, word and deed. He's, he's pairing these two together to say, what is he saying? The words that I say to you are life. The word in the Greek is zoe. It means, it means a quality. It means abundant life. Those are the words I'm giving to you. And Jesus is constantly, constantly comparing his word, um, his word to bread. Uh, the famous one, at least in my mind, Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is the temptation against the devil, Richard, uh, this is, uh, uh, um, what, is, what does he say? What is, he, what is one of his main comebacks to the devil? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? Um, oh, yes, here's the, the, John's account of this. Listen to this. Jesus saying, this is John's account of the feeding of the multitude, and here's Jesus' explanation. This is John, if you want to read it, John chapter 6, verses 47 through 51. He says, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Here's Jesus. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, and yet they died. Right? But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man shall eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give to you for, for, life in the, for the life of the world. The life of the whole world is in me. Do you hear? Here's what Jesus is saying to this, this army of angry, uh, you know, the ten, you can just feel the tension simmering in the region of We'll give our lives for this. We're just ready to throw off Roman oppression. This, we're done. We, we don't care what the cost is. It, that, that, it's just a boiling pot. And what does Jesus say? Does he, does he mobilize that momentum for his own ends? No, here's what he says. He says, your hunger for power, he's telling them this, your hunger for power and liberation will never satiate you unless you eat of me first. I'm what you're really looking for. The bread that I'm giving to you will set you free no matter who has you oppressed. You can be free regardless of outside circumstances, regardless of the corruption of Herod, regardless of the corruption of the Roman government. I'm going to give you bread that will give you life in the midst of it that no one can take away, that no tyrant can tax from you. That's what he gives them. That's the message. Um, if, you eat, if you eat of me, you'll be more free than Herod himself. Herod um, would give up half of his kingdom for this erotic dance because, well, in reality, Herod's hungry. Remember, we talked about the Hebrew says that there's a link between hunger. There's just physical appetites. Herod is hungry for something. 
But if you eat from me, Jesus is saying, you'll have a kingdom too vast and too wide, too powerful to define by geographical borders. It's a kingdom of the heart. This is a clash of the kingdom. Herod's concerned about geography. He's concerned about where it all lines up. He wants to gobble up more land. He wants more power. Jesus is concerned about the kingdom that's in the heart that no borders can define on a map. It can only be defined by true liberation of the heart. So he's giving them much more than what they think they need. They're coming to, them, think, to him thinking, here's what we need. We're on the same page. Be our leader. We got your back. We're going to make you king by force. Right? And Jesus says, actually, what you need is much deeper than that. Is much more than that. Is much co- more cosmic than that. You have a cosmic hunger that only I can, that only I can fulfill. And you know that's how revolutions go, right? All historical revolutions, they they topple the the aristocracy and then they become just as as tyrannical and just as bad and just as evil as the people they just overthrown. They just became like, like them. Why? Because they're still hungry. Revolution doesn't fix it. There's a problem in all of our hearts. We're all hungry and Jesus understands this. So in reality, in a certain sense, yes, Paul, the people around the table were not literally hungry and the people in the wilderness were. But in another sense, in Jesus' eyes, spiritually, everyone's hungry. Everyone, Herod, these people, they're all hungry. And if you don't eat from me, you'll never be satiated no matter what your revolutions do, no matter what your, how successful your political causes may be or how valiant, the, uh, how valiant your cause might, it really is. There's a lot of valiant causes out there that we can march for, that we can go out there and stand for, and we should. But will that satisfy us? No, no, it won't. Okay, how does Jesus show his power? We said this basically already. He does a miracle. But it's a miracle to serve. It's a miracle for others. He's not insecure. He can forget about himself. Okay, one more thing I want to point out to you that's very important. Notice the two verbs um, and, well, read, read verse 14, verse 22. Or excuse me, read, no, I'm sorry. That's, I'm going I'm to link it to Mark 14, 22. But let me, um, let me go back to our text. Mark, what are we on, chapter 6? And let's go to here. Look at um, verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven... He does, there's two verbs in this sentence. He blessed and broke the loaves. It's the same two verbs that Mark is going to use in 14, 22, describing the last supper with his disciples. The same thing, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks, same word, eucharisteo is the word, and broke it. There's blessing and breaking. There's a breaking and a blessing. Um, here's one thing that's really interesting. If, if, and I'm, I'm, I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this this morning was to give you an appetite and confidence that you can notice things in the Bible also and that you can see things that are pertinent and that are amazing and God is leading you in that, in that way and to give you some tools maybe as to how. And one of the things is that you need to understand what the Bible is. The Bible is the history of redemption that leads to Jesus Christ. It's an integrated story about Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything in the Bible, everything, will have something to do with Jesus in it, 
with his finished work, his redemption. And by design, you don't have to make it there. Whether it's a genealogy, whether it's an obscure story, you can find a link to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's, a, it's the most incredible, integrated, ancient document in the world. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. Any scholar will tell you that the Old Testament and the Bible, the biblical canon as a whole, is by far, by far, not even a close second, or anything else is a close second, by far the most complicated, integrated document, ancient document that we have in the world. There's, it's filled with links that, point, that remind you of the past and also point you toward the future. It's filled with those things. And here, Mark, on purpose, in true Jewish style, puts the same verbs in to break into, the, in other words, um, this is the cross. The kingdom of Jesus is one of sacrifice. It's one of blessing but breaking. What did he, remember what he said to the disciples? He says, what we're gonna do today, this bread is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In other words, redemption, healing, cannot happen without pain and sacrifice. That's my equation that I'm putting before you. That's what I want us to notice here. Jesus on the cross, so look at this kingdom. Look at Jesus' kingdom. Jesus on the cross, looking at the people who were killing him, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and then he dies. In other words, he blessed the people that were killing him, and it broke him. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. He blessed his enemies. Now, juxtaposed to Herod. What did Herod do to his enemy? That's why Mark wants this a Mark and sandwich. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the kingdom of the world, what do they do with their enemies? That's right. They kill. Stamp it out. Pax Romana. Yeah. No, I don't know. My brain went, yes, no, and I'll just, yeah, I don't know. Good question. Look it up. I want to say yes. Is this the same Herod that Jesus was tried before? Um, you know, the great exegete Google will tell you that in about two seconds. Yes. So, but, you know, look at this, juxtapos this juxtaposition here. Herod kills people. Herod kills people that get in his way. The world power kills people that get in their way. Whether it's corporate, whether it's political or military. You know, you know it's, not it's not personal, it's business. I'll step on people to get to the I'll exploit people to get to the top, to get what I want. I'll give, you know, I'll make tremendous sacrifices if it benefits me. If it, if it gets to me, and I don't care who I step on to get to the top, that's the, that's the it's a dog-eat-dog-eat -dog -eat world, right? It's brutal. And yet here Jesus is, the true king, Herod's not even a king, he's a wannabe. And here Jesus is, the reality, the true king, and he shows up and he shows his power by saying, I'm going to bless the world by breaking, by sacrificing, by giving of myself. Okay, let's put it together. Talk about this. How are you processing this? Do you see what Mark's trying to do? Are you seeing it? Bring some conclusions out. What does this mean for us? 
What's that? That is, I got, I literally got chills when you said that. Yes, I would even go even more, I would, I will put it more forcefully. I think Mark intentionally is putting a choice before his readers. Which kingdom do you want? She was saying we have a choice. We have a choice between two kingdoms in Mark. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Herod, the kingdom, what I put in my notes is it's a me first kingdom, the me first power, or we have a choice with, to go with Jesus um, you know, uh, the kingdom of the world, we could say, is your life poured out for me. Your life broken for me. I'll break whoever it takes to, get, to, to give to me. Jesus shows up and he says, my life poured out for you. My life broken for you. The way to power in my kingdom, 12 apostles who I'm teaching this to, who just went out to propagate my kingdom. This is the, you need to learn something, apostles. The, the, the power in my kingdom is one through weakness. Let me, let me point something out since you pointed this out, Mary. Mark's gonna do this again in chapter eight, which is the turning point of the book. The turning point of the book is in Mark chapter eight, I think verse 27, where Jesus begins to make his march back towards, or towards Jerusalem. It's the hinge that everything sways. And it's interesting because it starts in Caesarea Philippi, a city that was, it's still going to the clash of the kingdoms, a city that was dedicated both to Caesar and to Herod Philip, uh, the, uh, Herodias's, I guess, real husband or first husband or whoever it is. It was dedicated to him. And, and Jesus leaves Caesarea Philippi to take the road of the cross, teaching the whole way there about sacrifice and humility. Mark is showing a a departure from one kingdom to another kingdom that only comes through a cross. Okay, you know, you, you know, you're safe to get out of this by just shutting up because you know I'm going to start talking. So I'm I'm going to stop and I'm going to I'm going to open up the floor. <laughs> Discipline. Yes. And then Jesus comes in and then Jesus also um, incorporates discipleship. Yes. So it's, yep. It's, it's, it's probably the initial spreading of, of things. Or... Yeah, it is. The, and that's, no, that's not a mild obs- or, uh, uh, side observation. That's the main context of this is that this is about disciples going out. Remember, that's what the story is about. He sent them out two by two. He's showing them the lessons of how, and showing followers how we go out, what the kingdom that we represent looks like in Seattle. It's all about that discipleship. That's what this is about. We show, you know, our power, we show power by force. Today we call it, you know, the cancel culture. We'll cancel you. Right? Forceful. It's violent. It really is. How do we combat that? Well, unfortunately, a lot of Christians are trying to get louder. 
and meeting force by force. Is that what we see here? I'm asking you, is that what we see here? Jesus says, I'm gonna lead a revolution. You are revolutionaries, but just not with, this, not with that same fuel in your tank. By a very different way. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the death of John uh, leads to um, definitely a feeling of, well, he lost that battle. And we're going to see the death of Jesus where he conquers, he, he raises from, from the dead, which nullifies John's death and everyone. It, it, basically, there's something redemptive in that. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because I think that says that. I think it says his disciples came and got him. Yeah, there's strategy on both sides, isn't there? Herod's strategy was to get the important people around him, just flex his power. Jesus' strategy, very strategic to go to this certain region. Absolutely. It's just so counter- what we would think. The way up is down for Jesus. The way, the way to power is through weakness for Jesus. I want to bring up one more, I want to ask you one more thing. Is this also an example for us? You know I hammer on this all the time. The cross is not so that we don't suffer. The cross is so that we see that redemption comes through suffering. And I think that's important because we're, we are people who suffer. Part of living is suffering. You know, we live in a broken world. We're suffering. And the ideas of evil, um, like Vero was saying, is, was this for anything? Those are suffering terms. Did, did, what was the point of all this? Um, you know, there's nothing worse. There's no worse kind of suffering than pointless suffering. That's just the worst. Um, and I think here... Jesus is saying your suffering means is fraught with meaning. It brings redemption. What's that? There's one more thing. As Richard was talking, I was thinking that's that's too many people. I want you to sift the people that mm. bend down and lap the water mm. like a dog, or those that bring the water to their mouths with their hands. Yeah. I'm going to make some. I love it, Paul. That's a great observation. Uh, Chapter 6, okay. John chapter 6, verse 66. John 6, 6, 6. It says, and many stopped following him after that point. And that's when he turns to his disciples and says, What about you? Are you going to leave too? It's a sifting. Very good point. Yeah. 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 Totally. Solutions, and then all of a sudden, it's, it all goes back to Jesus. Absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah, Michael. Would you pull your mask away just so I can hear you? Hmm. We're broken. I'd love it. That's a great segue. Let me just. Let me just wrap up by showing you some things from this last section. Let's look at verse 35 
through 44, it says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? And give, it to, and, and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five, five, and two, five, lo- five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he took up, he, he looked up to heaven, and here's our two verbs. He blessed them and he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up uh, 12 baskets full of broken pieces of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, first of all, what Jameson said, this is real brief, they realized it was impossible. Basically, what you were saying is, what, it's sarcasm. What should we do? Go buy 50,000 pounds. They're basically saying, this task that you're sending us on, Jesus, is impossible. It's point number one. What does it mean to be successful in this world as, as disciples? To realize our task is impossible. Right? We should all be feeling that. To go out into Seattle and make a difference? Impossible. Right? Second thing, because I want to be brief, notice he works with what they have. He could have, you know, he could have just like started popping up like trays of beautiful meals in front of every family and according to what everyone's preference is. How did he know I like the Oreo milkshake? You know, he could have done any of that. But Jesus intentionally, he works with what they have. He works with what they got, even though what they have is inadequate. Point number two, what we have to give is inadequate. So therefore, it doesn't work anymore, everybody, to say, well, I can't because... That does not work anymore. Well, once I, then. Well, first let me, and then. You, 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 what you have to, first of all, your, our task is impossible. Secondly, what you have, what I have, is inadequate. And here's what I will say. If you go out knowing, if you and I go out knowing that first it's impossible and knowing that, we, that you're unqualified, that I'm unqualified and that we're inadequate, And knowing it will take a miracle to make this happen. To reach Seattle, to make a difference in people's lives will take a miracle. Those three things, it's impossible, we're inadequate and unqualified, and it takes a miracle. Then and only then will Jesus begin to work his power through what you've got. Then and only then. Do you see how different that is? We say, well, let me go to training first. Let me read a few books. Let me have a longevity of faithfulness. Let me this, let me that, let me this, let me that, let me this. Let me, in other words, become qualified. There's so many people that I talk to, they're like, well, I'm not ready yet. And I ask them, well, what what does that mean? When will you be ready? They have no definition in their mind. They have no target in their mind. And the reality, it's kind of like what Jesus said about it's a wicked and perverse generation that looks for a sign. In other words, there will always be something else. (laughs) Always. You know, it's true. 
Well, put a fleece down. Okay, well then do it this way. Okay, well if it happens three times. Okay, well then this. Okay, well then once my marriage is, is functioning and we're perfect. Okay, once my finances are together. Okay, once this or once that. God is saying, no, 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 I'm gonna work through your inadequacies. Bring me what you've got. Do you know that God can and wants to work through your brokenness? It's, it's, see what, we're, what Jesus is, what Mark is doing here? He's taking what we think and he's flipping it upside down. Me first. You broken for me, Jesus says. No, you first. Even though I'm the king of the universe, you first and I'm gonna be broken for you. I'm gonna be poured out for you. And the same is true with these disciples going out. He's saying, look, you know, Herod surrounded himself with every, the military prowess, the political people, people, the experts who know how to shape culture and get things done. And Jesus surrounds himself with inadequate people with a task that's impossible so he can work a miracle. You are qualified precisely because, or precisely when you realize that you're not qualified. Because what does it do? Like Jameson said, it forces you to your knees. We don't go out thinking we're, we got this. We go out in humility and say, God, if you don't come through, it's not gonna work. <laughs> and then he says, now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. So good studying the Bible with you guys. It's awesome.